Terrell Suggs making his presence felt again. Jeff Triplett ruled out. I don't think he did. I think that's a live football. What is up, Football Nation? It is the Sportscasters here. I'm the host, Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Hey. It is episode six of the Football Nation Presents, the Sportscasters podcast. Coming to you a little bit later than usual in the week this week. Basically to accommodate a guest. This show is somewhat guest-driven, and we got a really good one this week. We wanted to make sure that we could set it up so we could bring the interview to you. And our guest this week is Greg Cassell of NFL Films. Uh, Greg's been with NFL Films for 32 years, and we're really excited to have him on the program with us this week. Uh, basically, if you haven't heard us yet on the Football Nation website, but you are familiar with our work at www.sports-casters.com, you know this is a scaled-down version of the original Sportscasters podcast. It focuses exclusively on the National Football League and Division I NCAA football. You can find our podcast at www.sports-casters.com. This week, we have Frank DeFord on the show. Also, we have John Wertheim and Dan Wilkin from The Daily. So, a really good show over there. Our other podcast, the one you're listening to right now, is on www.footballnation.com. And last week, we had episode five, which was Doug Farrar from the Shutdown Corner blog at Yahoo Sports. So, so far, I think... Episode one, we had Peter King, right? Episode two, we had Dave Namashek. Episode three, we had Dan, Dan Shanka. Shanka. Yep. Uh, episode four, we had who was after Shanka before Farrar? Oh, Stuart Mandel from SI. Oh, right, right. Uh, Doug Farrar, and now today, Greg uh, Greg Cassell. So we're really excited about the guests. Really excited about the podcast. And each week, we start the podcast off with the segment we call Three Things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So the Redskins started a little bit of controversy at the draft when... After training a whole shitload of picks to draft <laughs> Robert Griffin III the and pick him seven. second overall, they picked Kirk Cousins from Michigan State in the fourth round. It's very interesting. Well, in probably an attempt to kind of die that controversy down a bit, after rookie minicamp, minicamp last week, uh, Coach Mike Shanahan announced that RG3 is the starter. So oh. he's officially 
been named the starter for next year. Shocking. Yes. Shocking news. Well, today news came out that RG3 has trademarked his name and also trademarked Unbelievably Believable. Okay. So basically what happened is he's applied for trademarks for the following things. This sounds like a Nike thing. RG3 with Roman numerals. Right. RG3 with a number three. Okay. Robert Griffin III with Roman numerals. Okay. And the phrase unbelievably believable. That's according to USA Today. And a pretty funny line at the end of the uh, article here. No word on any pending Kirk Cousins trademarks. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where we're at with that. (laughs) Robert Griffin making news. Already Uh, exciting. Yeah. All right. Off the top, uh, you heard Terrell Suggs highlight. Kind of a confusing one. One last thing. John Beck, the guy that got kind of kicked out the door because of that. Yes. He's a Texan now. Ah, Good for him, I guess. Yeah. Terrell Suggs, who you heard off the top in that highlight, kind of a funny highlight. If you don't remember the game, it was against the Steelers in the playoffs. Uh, Suggs is celebrating, not as kind of standing over the ball, and then someone finally picks it up and runs it in, and just in case, like you see all the time, and it's turned out to be a touchdown. Well, anyway. Corey Redding. Terrell Suggs won't be doing that this year. He has torn his Achilles tendon playing Ouch. basketball, allegedly. So uh, you never like to hear that as a fan, but... Big loss. I mean, that's the defensive player of the year last year. Yep. Interesting, though, that it kind of worked out the way it did for the Ravens, who drafted Courtney Upshaw. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. I guess he's going to have to step up. He's another guy that's probably going to be named a starter uh, pretty quickly in the process. But that's a guy that you definitely, they're not going to want him to hold out or anything like that. They're going to want to get him and get, get him learning as much as they can so he can be a factor on the defense. But Suggs has come out and kind of said, I think he said on Twitter that he laughs about how everyone says it's the whole season because he says that he only kind of partially tore yeah, well, the Achilles tendon and he's going to be making it back for at least half of the season. Guys are insane athletes, so you never know. But uh, And there was word today that Adrian Peterson is saying he'd be disappointed if he doesn't, if he doesn't play week one. Or actually, quote-unquote, very surprised. If he doesn't that, play in the opener. That's amazing. But I know his doctor, I believe, said something like he's never had a guy that was the athletic specimen he was. Going back to your first thing, can I go somewhere right now and trademark Matt Barkley? Like, what Like, what does he have to do to trademark RG3? It's a good question. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'd like to go I... trademark Matt Barkley so Nike can't put that on jerseys. Like, what, what does that mean? What? What can't I do with that name now? I wonder if it's similar to like buying domains. Yeah, I don't know. Can I not have like an RG three party? Like you can't have Super Bowl parties at a bar. You just have like the big game parties. That's <laughs> a good question. I don't have a great answer for you, but it brings up a very very interesting point. Yeah, I don't know what he's looking to do with it. God bless him. <laughs> My number two thing: this bounty stuff just won't go away, huh? Today oh. comes out a report that Chris Carter said that he had a bounty on Bill Romanowski in games that they played against each other, which is really strange because you would expect that it was Romanowski putting the bounty on Carter, right? But it was the opposite. Uh, In an interview on the Dan Patrick Show, Romanowski said... He might have thought about wanting to hurt Carter, but he wouldn't have bothered to trash talk Carter before a game. 
It's absolute fiction. If he could read my mind in pregame, yeah, maybe he had it right. But I didn't talk before games. I was in the zone. I was focused. Right. Now, I was thinking everything I had to do to help our defense, to help our team win a football game. That's all that mattered. Now Carter's kind of backed off that and said he did it like on the first play of the game or something like that, not in pregame. But either way, the idea that Romanowski said nothing is crazy because he never says nothing. And the idea that... That they waited to come out with this. I don't know. It's- Carter says that he put the bounty on Romanowski as a form of self-defense. After Romanowski approached him before a game and said, I'm going to end your career, Carter. <laughs> so yeah. this is what you call the aftershock, right? This yeah, is all of the, of the other stuff and- that's coming in the heels of the bounty Look- story. I, I think the bounty story is disgusting, uh, particularly the Greg Williams audio that got leaked. Yeah, that's bad. That That's the worst part of it. That said, players are going to trash talk each other. They're going to say they're going to kill each other, but they're not actually going to kill each other. It doesn't mean there's money behind it. I know the way football players talk. My brother was a hockey player at never re- like a really, really high level, but even at like the like just the travel level. I know he would get in people's heads. He told me some of this stuff. He said during face-offs, he would look at a guy and tell him, if I were as ugly as you, there'd be a bullet in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just get under the people's skin, and that's all that this sounds like it was. And I really don't think Romanowski had bounties out. Or Romanowski said, if he put a bounty on me, it wasn't very good because it didn't work. I just think <laughs> this is his way of trying to make himself relevant for what is going on now. Right. Player, players talk, and I mean... There's a serious issue of what actually happened, but I think it's going to get foggied a little bit by by things like trash talk now. So it, it's a slippery slope, and it's a it's a funny new world we live in the NFL. All right, my second thing this week. This is a tweet from uh, kind of cold hard football facts rival a little bit here, Football Outsiders. But I'm not sure who this guy is, but at Football Outsider or F O underscore M Tainer T A N I E R. He tweets that D'Angelo Williams is four carries away from joining Jim Brown as the only players in history with 1,000 carries and over five yards per carry. Wow. Now, there's a lot of stats out there that kind of sound real situational and crazy and stuff, but I, I think this one's pretty this one's pretty significant. That's saying that you've had a, a career that is at least, I don't know, four, three, four, five years long. And you've been good that whole time. Yeah, if you figure it's about 200 carries a year, maybe. maybe I a little mean, bit more than that. Brown obviously had more carries. I don't have the stats in front of me right this second, but he obviously had way more. So his career was a little bit longer. Uh, numbers more significant than D'Angelo Williams. But still, it's something. And it's amazing with as lousy a team as D'Angelo Williams has had. And I know there's fantasy football owners out there right now screaming, what? like, what? Are you you got to be kidding me. This guy's been terrible for me, but... He gets the job done when he gets the ball. So he's busted uh, off some long runs in his career. He too. has. Uh, Barry Sanders, by comparison, had three thousand sixty-two carries for fifteen thousand two hundred sixty-nine yards, which comes out to a four point nine eight six six yards Ooh. per carry average. So he was Just incredible. Missed. I mean, that's over three thousand carries. We'll see if D'Angelo Williams even hits that number, which I, I'm guessing the money would be that he doesn't, but. I think what that tweet says is that D'Angelo Williams might be a little bit of an underrated running back in the National Football League. A little bit. And Jamal Charles, I believe, is averaging up near six yards per carry, but he's only really done it in like a season and a half. So there's guys. It's it's going to be interesting to see how numbers stack up against historical numbers now that everyone has platoons and 
um, multiple backs and teams that throw the ball 40 times compared to 20 rushes. So, yeah, I would agree that D'Angelo Williams is a little underutilized. And like I said, every fantasy football owner out there that's ever drafted him in the second or third round is screaming the exact same thing at their computer right now. My last thing today, you know, we all like to uh, follow athletes on Twitter, some to a higher degree than others. But if you've been enjoying following Antonio Cromartie, that time is over. Uh, he shut down his Twitter account. We'll see how long that lasts. Simply saying in his last post, have fun to his followers. Uh, Pro Football Talk had the story. They said maybe, admittedly, it's a slow news day, and that's why we're <laughs> reporting this. But also, Cromartie was a pioneer of sorts on Twitter. He complained about the Chargers' food at training camp linking the quality of the cuisine to the franchise's inability to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and so the team fined Cromartie $2,500. It was one of the first Twitter is a loaded gun for athletes tweets. Sure. He, he was the one that went after a quarterback, too, on there, right? I think that his kids are going to be the ones who suffer because how are they going to keep track of dad without him on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, it's one of the saddest scenes in the history of Hard Knocks, this guy trying to remember... With the names of with the names kids. of all his kids and their ages and I mean if I can if you can find that on YouTube oh, that would I, be I incredible know. I mean Might maybe not with uh... but it's just like Cromarty <laughs> he's he's gone he's not on Twitter have fun sad day see you later follow someone else <laughs> he's taking his ball and going home all right an actual sad news and we discussed this a little bit on the other podcast but. We figured we'd give it a little more time on this podcast. Junior Seau has uh, passed away, I guess you can put it, uh, from what appears to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound, eerily similar to the cornerback, I believe, right, Dave Dave Duerson, that shot himself in the chest and left a note that said, I'm, I did this so you can have my brain tested. Uh, hmm. The NFL is a problem. And I don't know how they fix it. And I said the same thing on the other podcast, but they have to fix it. Uh, these players are big and strong. Uh, they're they're freaks. They're they're modern day uh, Adonises and Atlases. I mean, these guys are just they're American gladiators, but they're all the American. It's not the American gladiators against the little guys. It's they're all gladiators hitting themselves at full speed and having collisions, the equivalent of car crashes and. Their brains are are suffering for it, and I, I don't know how to fix it. And I wonder if now, because it's a guy like Junior Seau that's as big and a Hall of Famer and recent memory type player, I wonder if when this season starts, is it going to feel feel different at all? Is there going to be changes? And I know the NFL, I heard the other day, has over 1,700 players' names on lawsuits against them. Uh, yeah, that's insane. That's nuts because I, I don't know how many players have played in the NFL, but that's got to be a, a really good portion of it. And Roddy White isn't happy about that, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But first, the junior sayout thing is super sad. When I yeah, heard... I don't mean to not talk about the the personal aspect of it. It's a terribly sad story. It really broke my heart when I heard it because this is a guy who has brought me years and years of entertainment. I always loved to watch junior sayout play. He played the game a way that not many others do. And I remember using him one time in an argument with someone as an example of someone who had pulled himself out of nothing 
and done it with such class and dignity and, and what a great player he was. And I was so sad. I saw the video of his mother sobbing in a press conference near his home the day that it happened and how she asked God to take take her and bring back her son. And yeah, that broke my tough. heart. Yep. And TMZ had the 9-11 call with his girlfriend who had found him, and, and that was terribly sad. And just a really, really sad, sad thing. And I guess more than anything, I just want to say God bless right. Junior Seau and, and rest in peace. But I don't know if you remember going back uh, that he was involved in a car crash. Yeah, supposedly he kind of ran off a cliff and maybe right, that was a were, cry for help. There were rumors that he may have tried to kill himself then, too. It was after a similar situation, after a domestic dispute. Uh, he said he didn't try to. Now, one thing I heard... After this story broke, it was all over the national news. It was all over the local news. And I was listening to a local radio program, and people called in. And this one guy called in. He said, never played pro sports or anything like that. He just played when he was a kid and had about six concussions throughout his life. And he's at the point now. And this, like I said, is not some freak physical athlete like a professional player. This guy said that he has to hire his mother to drive his kids around because he doesn't trust himself. He says he has times... Where he just loses twenty minutes of his day, has no idea where he or what happened or what he did during that time, and he said he gets in fights with his wife because she says things that he doesn't recall at all, and uh, he says he's not a depressed guy, but he doesn't know what he's doing in those twenty minutes. Maybe in those twenty minutes, he's the type of guy that could take his own life or something like that. So it's a scary thought that, like you said, that may have been a cry for help. I don't know if we know enough about these CTE-related injuries and uh, to even know if you have to be a depressed person to do something bad like this to yourself or if it's just – it almost sounds like a Hulk-type thing. I mean, not to make it into like a comic book comparison, but these guys black out basically and don't know what they're doing. And like I said, this guy loses time where he can't even – he's too afraid to even drive his own kids. And that's just an amateur. I mean, these guys play at the highest level against the best competition. Emmett Smith came out and said he worries over the hits he took in the NFL. He told the Fort Star, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Why wouldn't I worry? The evidence is starting to pile up. You're talking to a guy who carried the ball more than anybody in NFL history. Right. So why wouldn't I worry? I pray about it. Um, you mentioned the lawsuits. Roddy White, not happy about it, tweeted today, It's crazy how football players are killing our game. You signed up to play a violent game. You made a lot of money. Now you talk bad about how... And then he continued on another tweet. Yes, older players didn't make money. Yes, older players didn't make what we made. But I remember when gas was 89 cents, so the cost of living was different. I have nothing against old players. They made football what it is today, and I love those guys. I don't have a problem with them suing the NFL. I don't have to worry about it. The NFL has enough money to pay them. So he's kind of all over the place. Yeah, he might want to kind of check himself. But I think the biggest issue that or the biggest discussion that's cropped up now is the idea of parents and will they allow their kids, kids to play, play football right i'm not a parent don you are you have a daughter i doubt she's going to really no. all that interested in playing football but if your next kid is a son and he comes to you at five years old and says his dream is to play football and one day make it to the nfl is that going to be okay with you look that's the scary thing is on that same program i was listening to a kid called up saying he's He's like a 15-year-old kid. I think he played high-level hockey, he said, the caller. 
And he said that he hides head injuries from his mom because she knows she'll take him out of hockey. That's scary stuff. I mean, they, first of all, at the amateur level, I think if you get a concussion, you have to, you're done for the year or, or longer. You know what I mean? They have to take this stuff really seriously. I, I don't know what I would do, honestly. It's a scary thought. And I know some people out there are probably thinking, I'm fine. I played football my, growing up my entire life. I'm fine. I dodged it or whatever. But I don't know. It seems it's uh, – You look at people like Eric Legrand, you know, the kid from Rutgers who's paralyzed, paralyzed now. Yeah. You know, you see all of the devastation. But then the flip side of that is ESPN and Peter King – or excuse me, Sports Illustrated and Peter King did a great report on just an average NFL team, the Cincinnati Bengals from the 1980s. And it was amazing how different – each player's result was. Yeah. You know, some guys had concussions. Some guys had the soreness here and there. Boomer Esiason, the quarterback who's taken maybe the most hits on the team, says he doesn't have a single effect. Sure. And, I mean, that's that's a, that's a fair thing to say, but maybe the more fair comparison is to take that whatever 80-something Bengals team and compare it to 30 people that worked in a – in a bank or an office for that time. You know what I mean? None of those people are dying of any of this. So even if it's one is too many, and I know it's not, I know it's unavoidable, but they have to do something to to bring it down. And the fallout has already started today. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this yet, but just a few hours ago, Jacob Bell, who started 100 of 109 games from 2004 to 2011. So that's a fairly good career. So it'd be interesting to see if a younger player does this, but retired. He said, uh, Seau's death was the cherry on the top that convinced him to end his career. Basically, he it's not a matter of how you're going to – football players all talk about how they have bumps and bruises when they're in their 40s and stuff like that, but you want to be there. You want to be around for your kids and your family and right. stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I don't mean to talk like football is the devil because obviously I love it. I do this podcast. I love fantasy football. I mean, you heard us getting, if you listen to the other podcast, excited the last two weeks about fantasy football drafts that we won't be having for months still. But something has to be done, and I I almost think, I don't know who needs to do it because I think Roger Goodell is in a position where he has to look out for the viability of the league in terms of, from a legal standpoint. They've got seven. I mean, everything he does now. They talked about the Saints bounty. This was known about years ago, but he lawyered up and made sure he did everything right to keep the NFL out of trouble, so that they didn't do anything wrong. Meanwhile, they could have been doing this for however long. I mean, he's got to act in the interest of player safety and not in the interest of the legal side of it from the NFL's perspective. I think what the NFL needs to do is they need to do the obvious stuff first. Like, how can you change the helmet? The helmet seems to have been the same for a long time. Is there not any ways that you can change the helmet? Second is I've always heard that mouth guards can be the biggest deterrent to helmets. Yeah, they need major penalties. Are there rules and penalties? Because I always see them hanging out of their mouths. You see that with hockey kids all the time. Make sure that... These mouth guards are in and improperly, and it's the best mouth guards being used. Yep. And anything you can do that's obvious, do that. Yeah, there's not enough money you can spend on these guys' safety. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you've got players dying and players quitting, like the Jacob Bell, 
Uh, you're not going to have a league before long. Mark Kelso is a guy who played for the Buffalo yep. Bills, and he wore a special helmet. And the Bills forced him to wear that helmet. He didn't want to wear it. That apparently helped prevent future concussions in Probably, his case. Yeah. So maybe we should all wear those helmets. People joked he looked like uh, – who was the green guy on the Flintstones? His little like imaginary friend. But he, like, it was a really oversized helmet, yeah, but – Green kazoo or something like that. Yeah, kazoo. yeah, something like that. But yeah, it it, it probably. But if everyone was wearing them, them, right? No one would care, right? Right. It and seems like they've gone towards good, stronger and good, sleeker, good, right, right. Good, But you know what? Do the obvious stuff first, and then go from there. And if one of the obvious things you can do is make sure mouth guards are in and helmet technology, maybe pads on the outside of the helmet, which obviously looks ugly, and they don't want to do that, but. Just do whatever you can do that's obvious first and then go from there. But still, I mean, players aren't dying because of – I mean, it, it would still be a brutal, hard-hitting sport if you could somehow figure out how not to knock people dizzy. You know what I mean? You'd still be getting people hit and there'd be broken limbs and stuff. Not that it's what people watch for, but it it's not going to be a pillow fight or something just because you make it a little bit safer. They, they gotta, they've got to do something. This is a – this is – for the Saints, the worst offseason to have this Bounty Gate scandal because right. of all this other yep. stuff. No doubt. But if anything, it brings a gigantic microscope on the NFL, and I'm Roger Goodell, and he's got to do something. Well, we started this with Junior Seau passing away. We should end this with saying, rest in peace, Junior Seau. God bless you and your family. Hopefully you're in a better place. And we'll be right back with Greg Cassell. Our guest today is from Queens, New York, and is a graduate of Amherst College, where he played college basketball. He has spent the last 33 years in NFL films, where he is a senior producer. In 1984, he and Steve Sable created the highly acclaimed NFL matchup program. He is the co-author of the book Games That Changed the Game, The Evolution of the NFL in Seven Sundays. He blogs on NFL Films' website and is one of the smartest football minds on Twitter. A warm football nation and sportscasters welcome to the very talented Greg Cassell. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing great, Steve. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. You know... I think if there's one thing that every football fan can pretty much universally agree on is that NFL Films is awesome. I mean, you usually don't get much of an argument if you start a conversation <laughs> with that. Uh, th- there's so many great things that NFL Films does. And I guess where I, I, I'd like to start is you have all this great video and audio and I wonder when something happens like it did last week when Junior Seau tragically passed away does your mind immediately go to after you get past the shock and and the the regret and the sorrow for the family and things like that do you start to think of the moments that Junior had that were captured by NFL films and how you might be able to put those in a way that you can show them to fans and, and and kind of honor Junior in a way that only NFL films can? Well, Steve, it's funny you ask that question because I've talked to many players over the years, as you can imagine, and 
even the players remember games through seeing NFL films highlights. Uh, I remember talking to Ray Lewis years ago, talking about a Super Bowl back in the, oh, I guess it was the mid-90s. I forget which one it was. And he remembered it. He, we, we were talking about it, and he remembered it solely based on how it was presented by NFL films, not watching it on television. So I think that that's probably true of a lot of people, that their memories of players uh, come from NFL films, whether we've had players wired, whether it's just pre-shots or great shots. I, I think most people would probably say that that's the way they see the football world. Yeah, you know, I remember I'm a big Saints fan, and I remember when the Saints won the Super Bowl, one of the first things I started to think about is, I can't wait to see the America's Game program. You know, that that's going to be so great. Right. I, I can't wait to see who NFL Films had mic'd up. It ended up being Coach Payton and Fujita. And right, right. It, it, was, it was great. I mean, how much do you guys love doing those kinds of shows, and, you know, how is it? that you guys developed that as kind of being your wheelhouse? Well, I think that's what we've been from the very beginning, and I wasn't around in 1963 when it first started, but I have been with the company since 1979, and I basically cut my teeth making those kinds of documentary films. I still do one of those every summer. My guess is you're probably familiar with the greatest game series on ESPN. Yep. And, and I do one of those every summer, so you've probably seen a number that I've done. And that's a 90-minute film, so it's 72 minutes of actual time, and you do it by yourself. And it's, it's like doing a feature film in our business. And uh, so, you know, I, I still really enjoy that as well. I mean, obviously, I love the X's and O's of football very, very much, but, you know, I still get an opportunity to do uh, a Greatest Games every summer, and, and that's what NFL Films really has always been. And we still obviously do a ton of that, and, and that's probably what we're most known for. Does it make you proud when, you know, I read in the, in the introduction that you and Steve developed a show in 1984, and here we are all these years later, and it's still one of the shows that true football fans are most excited to see as they get ready for their games every week, and that's the NFL matchup program. How proud are you of that program and the success of it over the well, years? You know what? I, I I usually don't talk about this, but since you asked me, uh, you know, a direct question, I, I'm very proud of that because when we started in 1984, and, and the first host, by the way, was Chris Berman. But when we started, most people for a number of years—I mean, probably 10, 15, who knows, maybe 20 years—basically said no one really cares about football that way. And, you know, fortunately, because it's NFL Films and because Steve Sable uh, basically allowed me to cultivate that from the beginning and kind of figure out how to go about doing it, we were, we were able to continue to do the show and provide it to ESPN. And now, over the last number of years, clearly, more and more people are interested in the game that way. They're fascinated by the tactical nature of the game. And I've always said we live in an information world, Steve. People want more information, not less. And they can get all kinds of statistical information now on the Internet at their fingertips. It's, you know, it's on your phone. It's on your iPad. That stuff's available in five seconds, but it's still not available. And that's you know, the way it is, is uh, coaching tape other than on a couple of shows. And we were the first to do that. And I like to believe we're still the best at presenting that material. Why is it, do you think, that 
11 on 11 tape is guarded as closely as it is? Steve, that's a question for uh, higher pay grades than myself. I, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that it is. <laughs> you know, another, <laughs> and I'm fortunate because I work here, so I can I can see it when I want to, and I can see college tape when I want to because I work here. So it's not really something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, another NFL Films product that I've loved for years is Inside the NFL, and a couple of years ago, yep. Inside the NFL moved from. HBO to Showtime. How do you think the show's evolved since it's been on Showtime? And do you think do you think it's a better show there? And uh, what do you see as the future for inside the NFL? Well, you know that's a tough question for me to answer, and and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I don't see the show because it's during football season and I'm working. Right. So, I, you know, other than you know seeing some highlights here and there, our highlights, I don't actually see the show on TV. Uh, I know all the people uh, on it very, very well. Uh, JB, Phil Sims, Collinsworth, Sap. I mean, I know those guys really well. But I don't actually, I'm not home at 9 o'clock on Wednesday night, you know, sitting down comfortably with a drink and watching uh, the show. So it's, I, I, don't, I don't know really how to answer that. Okay. Uh, one thing I'm sure you'll be a little bit more comfortable in answering, and one of the great moments for NFL Films was at the Hall of Fame last year. Uh, when oh, yeah. Mr. Sable was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame. What was that weekend like for everyone at NFL Films? Well, I can only tell you what it was like for me because Ed Sable hired me. I, when I interviewed in 1979, I interviewed with him. And he hired me, and I would call Steve Sable my absolute mentor here at NFL Films. So it was a really proud moment. And I remember uh, being at the Dallas uh, Super Bowl with the horrible weather when that announcement was made and a number of us at the NFL Films Hotel in, in, uh, in, in Dallas um, were watching on TV at the time and it was really emotional when, when uh, Ed Sable was announced as, as a Hall of Famer. So I think a lot of people here have tremendous pride and feel really good because there's, there's no better place to work. It's, it's, it's a great place to come every day. What kind of like innovations or what are some of the next steps that you can see NFL films taking in the next couple of years as football evolves? Well, that's a great question. It's funny. You know, I don't, uh, because of what I do, uh, I'm very conscious of, of my show and, uh, and, and the things that I work on. Um, you know, I, I think what, what you're always looking for more and more of is, is access to players, as people. As, I mean, that's a lot of the things we do now because we're very busy in the offseason, uh, and, and people might not realize that, but we do a lot of programming that's not just dependent on the games. And I think it, it's, it, it fits with our world now, with, with the social media element of our world, with Facebook, Twitter, People feel they have a greater connection to people, whether they're athletes or just normal people like you and I. So I think what we're, we do more and more where we deal with these players as, as people and not just football players. You mentioned social media, and you've certainly taken to Twitter. How do you think social media has changed the NFL? And maybe more specifically, how has it changed what NFL Films does, if at all? You know, I don't know if it's changed specifically what we do. I think it gets our product out to more people because I think 
NFL Films, in many ways, was sort of a cult company. Everybody knows us and knew us. And as you said, there's probably not one person who would say that NFL Films isn't, isn't great at what we do. But on a certain level, I always felt like we were a little bit of a cult company. And I think this gets us out there in the mainstream a whole lot more. More people see what we do. And that, that never hurts because it's obviously very good. What made you decide to write the book? Uh, the book came about from years and years of film study with Ron Jaworski. We'd sit together, watch film, and sort of say every year, you know, boy, we could write a book about all this stuff. And we kept saying that, kept saying that, and finally we decided to take action. And that's there's no other great story behind it than that. It just sort of, when you sit and watch so much tape, you see how the game changes and the game changes quickly. It doesn't change every year, every five years. Sometimes it changes every week or every two weeks. And, uh, we just felt that let's look at some of these tactical developments and, and trends and see if we can sort of go back and figure out where they came from, what their Genesis was and how they've evolved over time. And that's really how it came about. When you picked the games that changed the game, was there a lot of debate there between you and Jaws? Which games maybe should represent oh, yeah. this change? Which, yeah, yeah, is there a specific maybe game in there that could have been a different game? That maybe a story behind sure. that? Yeah. I think you could always say that. I mean, uh, I know when we talked about uh, the Bear defense under Buddy Ryan, they also played that same year in 85, the uh, 49ers earlier in the season, and they, they beat the crap out of them after losing to the same 49ers the year before in the playoffs, and that was the year the 49ers won the Super Bowl. So we certainly could have used that game. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's always open for debate. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, what the book is really about, even though the, the games are, are presented in detail, I think the book, book's ultimately about men who were pioneers and who changed uh, the tactical landscape of the NFL. So uh, to me, it's really more about that. Uh, you know, just by the nature of the book, uh, we, we ended up doing a lot with the specific games. But I think really when you look deeper, it's really about seven men who, who sort of have been uh, uh, seminal figures in the, in the intellectual and tactical advancement of the game. Football Nation and the Sportscasters are here with Greg Cassell, senior producer from NFL Films, who you can find on Twitter at Greg, C-O-S-E-L-L. You know, when you entered this business and basically – took an off-camera role for the most part. Was that partly based on the fact that you were concerned or, or maybe wondered how, what it would be like to enter the business as a Cosell, having an uncle who is the most famous sportscaster really in the history of sportscasters in front of the camera? Was it just more comfortable for you to be behind or and not have to deal with those comparisons? You know what, Steve, and, and this might not be the answer you're looking for, I didn't give that one second of thought. I was just, you know, a kid who graduated from college. I'd actually gotten a job my first year out of college out in, in Michigan. I was a, a high school teacher in a private day school and a basketball and baseball coach and realized that I wanted to do something else and probably sent a thousand resumes and cover letters across the country. NFL Films was one of them. Uh, simply because one of my roommates lived in the Philadelphia area and, and his father told me about NFL films. 
So, uh, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying that, uh, that my the fact that I'm a co-sell really had no bearing whatsoever on that decision. Interesting. So we're sitting here talking in in the spring, still a few months away from the NFL season. Maybe as a last thing, what are some things that fans can look forward to uh, in the world of NFL films as we get ready for the rest of the off season and, and transition into the new regular season? Well, one of the things that we that we started last year and we're doing, I think, thirteen more of them this off season, uh, and and maybe you've seen the series of Football Life. We did one yep. on Bill Belichick. Oh, did you get a chance to see that? Yes, I did. Those are great. I love the Walter Payton one, and I thought Jeff yep, Perlman was great in it. And... We're doing 13 more. And wow. so, uh, you know, I think that's something people can really look forward to. Uh, that, that Again, we talked about what NFL film sort of does and what our mandate's been from day one. That's really what it is. So, uh, But again, a perfect example. Those shows, certainly they're about football players or coaches or executives, but... Uh, uh, for instance, we're doing one on Tom Coughlin, which I think will be fascinating. Um, but ultimately, shows like that go, go deeper now. It, it's more personal. It's more humanistic. It's not just football. It's not just seeing the pretty ball in the air. So I think there's a, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. We do a lot more now. But, but people should definitely look for those shows because they'll be terrific. And those will air in the NFL Network again this year? Correct. Correct. Okay. And uh, about when will they start? You know, I'm not sure. They're being worked on now. Um, my guess is uh, probably late June, July would probably be when the first one would come out. And, and and I'm sure we'll do some other documentaries. Did you see the Name It documentary on HBO? I did. Loved it. Yeah, we, we were obviously a major, major part of that. It was a collaboration with HBO. But, uh, it, you know, we did a significant, significant part of that. So, I mean, those are the things we'll continue to do. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, like I said, that's really what the mandate of NFL Films has been pretty much from the beginning. Well, Mr. Cassell, our time is up, but this has been an honor, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk a little bit about NFL Films, which, like I said at the beginning, if you can show me a bar where two guys are arguing that NFL Films yeah. isn't great, uh, I would be shocked. So, uh, we, everyone in the football world loves what you do, and we really appreciate you giving us a little bit of time here today to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit. Hey, Steve, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. All right, Football Nation, we're back. I want to thank Greg Cassell for being on the show today. That was a real thrill and honor. I want to remind everyone out there to give us an email to sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show. Please follow us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. And follow our parents, Football Nation, at <laughs> Fball Nation. Don't forget to check out Season 2, Episode 17 of the Sportscasters, featuring interviews with Frank DeFord, Dan Wilkin, and John Wertheim. Find that at www.sports-casters.com and on iTunes. Uh, last piece of business for today is uh, this week on Football Nation. Don, what are you reading? I was just reading the uh, top 100 players of 2012. Uh, the NFL Network released their own, and I believe it was voted on by the players. And 
I don't see the author's name here, but he released his list of the players he thought would be. Who's his number one? Um, well, the, he's only doing he's doing it as the NFL Network does it, one hundred through eighty one. So gotcha. he has guys that he had on his list that weren't on the other list, and I'll find his name. So I want to get. Oh, there it is. I'm sorry. Big about the author thing on the side. Cooper Allen. Uh, it's fun to look at lists. Lists are lists are, are fun to do, especially when you have some voted on by players. But uh, his list is vastly different than the players, and kind of different than what I would see as a homer. I think. He doesn't even have Fred Jackson in his top 100, and Fred Jackson was like second in the league in yards per carry. Doesn't have yet. No, no, it's his on his list. Na. Oh. So he just listed the top 20 that the players chose. Fred Jackson was 83. He has him nowhere on his top 100. So Hmm. interesting, but he does have Marshawn Lynch at 38, Michael Turner at 21. I would disagree with those, but that's what lists are about: disagreeing and agreeing. And go on his thing and comment and tell him where he's wrong. All right, I noticed that there's a bunch of different series of articles kind of cropping around. One is top 10 draft picks in franchise history. Uh, I've also yeah, noticed yeah. Uh, top 10 biggest busts at different positions in the NFL draft, and I particularly liked the top 10 biggest defensive line busts in NFL draft history. It's written by a contributor named Jason Stolberg, 180 articles and 47,000 clicks into his career at Football Nation. He has Jonathan Sullivan, number one on the list, a former Saints, one I can't argue with. Uh, other notables on the list are Eric Flowers, uh, yeah. former Buffalo Bill at number three. And uh, Steve Etman is uh, his number 10. And I'll leave the rest for you to read. But a really nicely well done, well written article. Props to you, Jason. And uh, as always, there's. There's all kinds of great stuff on the Tons Football Nation website yep. that you can read, all kinds of different stuff, and all kinds of different lengths, too. There's short stuff, there's long stuff, there's features, there's uh, just something real quick. Yeah, so. and keep in mind, this is the off season, so, I mean, these guys don't have a ton of content to go on now, so they're making it as interesting as they can, and there's some cool things there. Like like I said, lists are a lot of fun, but... Uh, Check it out now while they're in the off season. Read a few articles by these guys. Kind of find a find an author you like for your team, and then you can follow them through the regular season too. Real quick before we do the uh, whole signing off thing, I just wanted to read something real quick that I forgot to read off the top. It's from Eric Olson, who is an offensive lineman for the Saints now. Uh, he over Twitter at e Olson sixty nine, which is his number. He uh, <laughs> he yeah. He goes. He has a nice little set of tweets here with an anecdote about Junior Seau. And I'll try to read this. It's disjointed a little bit because of the character limit. But, wow, this is a tough one. When I was a freshman in high school, Junior Seau worked the Jay Fiedler football camp at the time. At the time. (laughs) Football camp. At the end of one of the days, he challenged anyone to a one-on-one. Being one of the, quote, big kids, I was volunteered by my buddies who went up in front of the whole camp to face this monster of a man. Shaking in my cleats, he gave me a wink before the coach gave the cadence, and he let me pancake him. He sold it, too. I can't even tell you how good I felt at that moment. It changed me forever. The whole camp cheered for me, a chubby kid that didn't know if he even liked football. From then on, I was addicted, all thanks to this 10-time All-Pro that felt like making some snot-nosed kid's day. Doesn't seem like much, but it meant a lot to me. Sorry for the essay. Just had to share. Rip Jr., I'll never forget what you did for me. So, again, awesome. all-time good guy. Sad he was lost, and I just wanted to read that. I didn't want to let it forget about it. Rest in peace, Junior. We hope you're in a better place. 
Spend my days with a woman unkind Smoke my stuff and drink 